Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixer and producer David Cole. But first, there's a new study that just came out that says that kids spend almost as much time on TikTok as they do on YouTube anymore. In the U.S., the U.K., and Spain, kids from ages 4 to 15 spend about 85 minutes per day watching YouTube. But they spend 80 minutes on TikTok. TikTok's growth has been amazing. It was 100% last year, and it's 200% this year already. It turns out the kids are watching twice as many videos on TikTok as they did four years ago. But they haven't given up on YouTube yet. The YouTube app is used by 69% of kids in the United States, 74% in the UK, and 88% of kids in Spain. Believe it or not, they also watch Netflix a lot on their phone. 33% have the Netflix app in the U.S., 29% in the U.K., and 28% in Spain. During the lockdown, though, everything sort of changed. Viewing was up quite a bit, 99 minutes per day on YouTube, 95 on TikTok. The bottom line here is that TikTok is really coming on fast, and the music business is understanding that and trying to respond as best they can because there's a fan base, especially a very young fan base, which is kind of a sweet spot for the music industry, especially the pop and the hip-hop music that they currently put out. So all roads right now lead to TikTok. You might want to look at it. It's not the same at all as YouTube because everything revolves around the meme first and not so much around the song. The song is sort of ancillary to the meme. That being said, there's been a lot of hits that have come out of it in the last year alone. So if your music is aimed at that age group, that's the place for you to go. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now here's something that I just saw. That the first thing I thought is, why hasn't anyone thought about this before? It turns out that Telefunken has opened up a custom shop for mics. So of course, Fender's had this for a long time, and Gibson has had it too. You can have custom shop guitars left and right. But when it comes to audio gear, not so much, and rightfully so. But mics are sort of different, especially stage mics. So if you want, you can order one of Telefunken's M80 or M81 microphones. They're dynamics, and they're made specifically for stage use. You can change the body color, and there's 16 different colors and finishes, and also the finishes and colors of grill. Now, this could add anywhere from $20 to as much as $130 to the list price, and you have to wait a week or two to get it. That being said, it is there for you if you want a special sparkly pink microphone for that next gig. Something else caught my eye this week. Gibson sold its Stanton division to InMix. Now, Stanton for years and years and years was kind of the standard for stereo cartridges and styli. And they're also known for Final Scratch, which most DJs use. 
The Stanton Group was actually Stanton, Serwin Vega, and KRK, and it was bought by Gibson in 2011. Gibson, however, is now spinning off a lot of these companies that it bought in the previous administration, and they're concentrating more on their core brand. So having a cartridge company didn't necessarily fit in with that, so they spun it off to InMusic. Now, InMusic already has Newmark, Rain, and Denon DJ, so it's a much better fit. Gibson, however, did keep KRK and Sirwan Vega, which, again, is a better fit for them as well. So a little bit of news, there's some movement in some old-time audio companies, and I think for the most part it's a good thing. My guest this week is David Cole, who started his career as a staff engineer at the famous Capitol Studios in Hollywood, learned the lost art of vinyl dismastering there, and worked his way up to staff producer at Capitol and later MCA Records before going freelance. David's had a lot of great studio experiences, including engineering and co-producing for Bob Seger's huge hit, Like a Rock, as well as many albums he's made afterwards. His long credit list also includes albums with Melissa Etheridge, Steve Miller, Richard Marks, InSync, Poco, Kenny Rogers, Josh Groban, and Michael Bolton, as well as movies including A Mighty Wind, Best of Show, Waiting for Guffman, among others. During the interview, we talked about recording with Bob Seger, David's philosophy on mastering, working on music for movies, plug-in overload, and much more. I spoke with David via Zoom from his home on the California coast. Let's go back to your beginning. How did you get into the music business? Uh, I pretty much conspired to get into the music business. I was playing in bands, played keyboards and guitar. And uh, I figured out early on that I wasn't John Lennon or Paul Simon. I didn't have the message, but I made the mistake of doing some recording in a little tiny studio. And I saw that guy in the booth behind the glass door, glass window. And I said, that's a career? How do you do that? He's got all this cool equipment. He gets to collaborate with these uh, talented creative musicians. And I uh, basically apprenticed under that guy for a couple of years as I went to college. Back then, there was no academic path towards being a recording engineer or producer. So I kind of had to patch it, patchwork it together. And uh, uh, I lived in a suburb of LA. So I went into town, grabbed a copy of the Yellow Pages. Remember those? Yeah. This is pre-Google. This is pre-Google, right? Yeah. And I went to recording studios and I made little three by five cards of each studio, the, the name and address and a phone number and knocked on every door. Uh, got thrown out of most of them. A couple of them uh, let me come in and peek and see what they did. But what I took away from it was um, they recommended three things. Number one, get a degree in electronics because there's a lot of plugging this into that and impedance matching and you need to know about this Okay, great. Electronics degree. Got it. No, no, wait. You also need a uh, music degree because you need to speak to musicians in musical terms. I said, okay, got it. And I was ready to leave. They said, no, no, wait. You need one more. You need a, a doctorate in psychology <laughs> because you're going to be working with a lot of crazy people. So I got the message. I went back to school. <clears throat> one of the people I spoke with uh, during my tour of Hollywood was a guy by the name of John Krause. He was the studio manager at Capitol Records. 
which was my dream gig. If I could land a, a, a position there doing anything, that would be it. I was a big fan of the Beach Boys and the Beatles and a lot of people on the label. So I met with him about six months before I graduated. And he said, man, I wish you were available right now because we got an opening. It's doing tape duplication. You play a tape on this machine and make a copy on that machine. Does that sound like something you could do? And I said, absolutely. He says, well, unfortunately, we need you right now. And I had to weigh the consequences of skipping graduation, not completing my bachelor's degree, and going to work. And he said, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. How about can you give us 20 hours a week? Can you come work the graveyard shift? Which is what I did for the last six months of my college. Of course, my college grades went down, but I had my foot in the door and uh, worked my way through Capitol Records after that. Boy, that's a great story. I always ask everybody the same question, and it's surprising the variance of answers that you get, but that's a different one. Well, it's it was definitely my dream job, and I, I did the tape duplication for about a year, year and a half, late at night, <clears throat> up, up in one of the second floor little production rooms. But I would sneak down to the studio and stand outside the door and watch as uh, uh, some great engineers were recording some great talent. So I got to look over the shoulders of Al Schmidt, uh, uh, Hugh Davies, uh, Carson Taylor. Uh, and then later, uh, I was able to go into the studio on the off hours and, and learn their equipment. The studio manager was uh, gracious enough to let me do that. So when it came time for, you know, the assistant engineer who phoned in sick, they called me up and said, hey, can you cover this session? So it's that story. Wow. And then once I got in the studio, I locked the door and I never left. Yeah. How long were you at Capitol then? Uh, 11 years. I was a, a staff engineer for nine years, and they asked me to be a staff producer when there was a vacancy. I did that for two years. And during that time, I, I co-produced uh, an album called Like a Rock with Bob Seger. Mm, yeah. I had been uh, an engineer for him on a number of albums starting with Stranger in Town in 78. It was a long time ago. During that time, staff producer position, one of the A&R guys, Bobby Columbia, who was the drummer in Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, came to me and he said, hey, we signed this kid and he's really talented. He, he's a kind of a protege of David Foster. So right now he's making a record with Humberto Gatica. Hum's a great engineer. He's gone on to do Celine Dion and lots of other great projects. But he and Richard are kind of button heads and maybe you'd like to, to go cut a couple tracks with him and see if you guys click. And sure enough, I met with Richard and he played me his, his demos and I said, oh, that sounds great. And we totally hit it off. We went in the studio and uh, he hired some great studio musicians. I had about 20 minutes to get the sounds on everything. He counted it off and we did a take one of a song called Domi Nothing. Mm which was a break, breakout single for him. And uh, we all looked at each other after take one and said, well, that's it. Well, we want to do another one? Well, yeah, I guess. We're all, we all got dressed. We showed up. Yeah. Sure, let's do another take. We did another take. It wasn't any better. We all said, oh, well, thanks for coming, everybody. And that was the beginning of my career with Richard Marks. We did two albums together, his first two albums, and then uh, took a break. Uh, and then we came back and did some more some years later. 
So you were producing and engineering at the same time then. How is it to wear two different hats? It really works for me because, because I was a musician first, I understood and empathize with what people are trying to do out in the studio, exposing their vulnerabilities, they're sharing their creativity, they're communicating over the microphones. And I understood what it was they were trying to do and how to create an environment for them to be creative and to be comfortable. I basically tell an artist, I said, hey, look, this is a creative sandbox. Let's try stuff. Let's do things. Let's push. Let's, let's see where we can go with this. And we're not going to leave until we're happy. And if you stumble and fall, that's okay. We'll get up and try a different approach. So that puts people at ease. And I basically made the studio my instrument. I'm collaborating on making the process as seamless and fun as possible. When people are having fun in the studio, it shows up loud and clear. Yeah. And when there's somebody on the date who's not having a good time, who's having a rough time, boy, does that show up. Do you have a problem, given that there's a lot to think about in each job? So does one impede the other when you produce and, and engineer at the same time? I don't think so. I think I think the, my upbringing at Capital taught me to be pretty self-sufficient. Uh, when you were a staff engineer, if, if the artist brought in their own engineer, you became the assistant engineer and you helped him patch things in and run the studio run out and set up mics and do this, that, and the other. When there wasn't an outside engineer, you were not only the first engineer, but the second engineer. And I had to patch everything in and run out and move mics and keep people happy. So at least when I'm producing and engineering, I do have an assistant and I'll have somebody helping doing those sorts of things. So it doesn't, it doesn't really uh, impede either, either thing. Plus, as we are... As we are recording now in the in the digital world, we're we're constantly mixing as we go. At least I am. That's how I build a, a song. Is I like to make it sound as much like a record right away, so people can understand what it's going to sound like in the end. So the mixing session per se is really the last ten percent. So it's it's a cumulative process. I tried pr just producing and having somebody else engineer for me. And it was really hard for me not to reach over his shoulder and grab a knob. It seemed quicker for me to just do it as opposed to try and communicate what it was I wanted done. So I didn't repeat that, that uh, process too many times after that. You know, you just mentioned mixing as you go along. I'm curious if you had a standard effects set up, a template, so to speak, that you worked from, or did you add that as you went along as well? No, I've, I've certainly got a template of things that I like um, to start out with. And uh, I'll do the same thing with the uh, tracking layout. You know, if we want to switch songs and go cut something else, it's like a minute before we're ready to go. So it's, it's uh, super handy. There's so many uh, positives in terms of working inside the box. Artists have gotten to expect to be able to shift gears. I mean, you remember back in the day when it was on tape, if uh, we were doing a guitar overdub with one session musician and the producer says, let's go put that same guitar on a different song. Well, you had to change tapes on the machine, thread it up, tracks would show up in a different place, the tape alignment might be different. Mm. 
where there was an album called Stranger in Town that Bob Seger did. He cut it in, in about four or five different studios, and each studio had a different setup for the tape machine. Some were 15 Dolby, some were 30 non, some were 30 elevated plus six. <laughs> so it was, uh, we called it Stranger in Tones. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I did a record a few years ago, two, uh, three, four years ago, where the artists insisted on using tape, and it was miserable. Yeah. What was bad about it was the band would be really hot. It's a five-minute song, and you look, and you have four minutes of tape left. So wow. you have to stop everything, unwind it, put a new reel on, and, and they kind of lose it in the meantime because it takes so long. Then it was the other thing of, well, let's do another another vocal. Oh, wait. We can't, you know, th things like that, that you take for granted in the box. And I never felt that the sound of tape, I, I'm not nostalgic for it like other people are. I, I always felt what was coming off the console, I really liked. And then it went through the tape machine and it wasn't always the same and it wasn't necessarily better. Yeah, it's not as punchy. It's a little fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, you've had the crosstalk, you had all kinds of issues. And I, I don't prescribe to the uh, people that say, Let's track it on tape and we'll transfer it to digital. And now you've got the worst of both worlds, in my opinion. Uh, the, the other thing I love about tracking inside of a DAW is if, if we're cutting with a click, I'll keep it all on one session in one timeline and just make a, a new playlist so that those new takes, those subsequent takes will all line up, which totally makes compositing a breeze. Mm, yeah, no, that's a good way to do it. I keep the count off from the first take and then it punches in and records take two on the playlist number two. Sure. I name, I name the playlist as such to, to make it easy for comping. Yeah. Well, it's a good way. You've done a wide variety of artists and I saw it goes from Josh Groban and Michael Bolton to Bob Seeger, Frankie Beverly. Is your approach different for each one of them or is it relatively the same? I think the approach is just an overall general philosophy of, of creating an environment in the studio that's comfortable and, and uh, conducive to making music. Some people like to hit it right at 9.30 in the morning. Other people, it's you know 9 o'clock at night before they're ready to go. So you can't, uh, you can't put a template, per se, on the, the process. Some people are, are working at home a lot. Other people, like Bob Seeger, likes to track with a full section. Mm. He'll have two or three guitars, two or two keyboard players, a drummer or percussionist, maybe even horns, background singers, and they'll all be performing at the same time as he sings live. That's one thing I learned from, from watching him record. He would always sing on the live tracking dates. And one day Don Hanley came by, his friend, and said, Bob, why are you knocking yourself out? Don't you? Why don't you just sing it once and let the band play it over and over to that? And that was the beginning of the end for me, <laughs> in terms of obsessive compulsive uh, tracking. But I, I think uh, when the, a band can all play in the same room at the same time, regardless of the style of music, there's something that you get from that that you don't get in this layered approach. The interaction. The, the bass player raising his eyebrow at the drummer, those, those uh, magic things that just happen uh, in the studio. 
And I know some control freaks and some people really like to be able to just focus on one thing. They'll get the drums perfect and then they'll get the bass perfect and they'll get the guitars perfect. To me, it's a trade-off. Everything you do uh, is a choice. So it's uh, uh, the producer's job. I call the, the king of compromise. He's the one who is the final say uh, in terms of, guys, we're going to do it this way. This is the best take. Uh, let's move forward. I read somewhere, I guess, that you did some final mastering for a while while you are at Capitol. Yeah, I did. Capital was like the uh, graduate degree, if you if you will. I, I definitely learned uh, to do some classical recording. Uh, I worked on some R&B projects, a lot of rock projects, some pop projects. But there at Capital, they have their own mastering. And there were two outstanding mastering engineers at the time, Wally Traugott and Ken Perry. And between the two of them, they did Dark Side of the Moon, Saturday Night Fever, Fleetwood Mac rumors. I mean, some amazing stuff that went to vinyl. So whenever I had a mix that I was excited about, I'd go back up to the mastering room and play for Wally or Ken, get their two cents on it. But when they went on vacation, they need somebody to make replacement parts because they can only press so many records out of each master. So they taught me how to do mastering. And uh, I had a greater appreciation for what that process is. My two cents on mastering is if the mastering engineer improves your music more than 10%, you need to make a better mix. Mm. If you're expecting him to find some magic voodoo that is going to make your track really pop, then to me, that's a challenge to the mixer to why didn't you do that? Why didn't you find that, uh, that, that thing? But I'm always amazed and impressed when they can find something that improves my tracks. Uh, I take I don't take offense to it by any means, but I, I understand the limitations of what can be done in mastering. The reason why I asked you the question was I was wondering if maybe when you're at Capitol, it was following the EMI, the Abbey Road protocol of the way it taught all their engineers, where that was an integral part of learning how to be an engineer, because they felt if you knew how to master, then that was the toughest part of an engineer's job you'd appreciate everything after that but that was kind of in the middle before you became an assistant engineer but that wasn't the case with you yeah it was it was during those years that i would bounce back and forth between being an assistant being the first engineer um, even doing some tape production work when there wasn't a session book so i got a, a taste of a little bit of everything and and not only that <clears throat> not only did I learn the technical side from each one of those facets, but the discipline of, of how a recording session runs and what your role is in the recording session, what the protocol are um, in, a, in a recording session, how a mastering session works and the protocol and how to behave in that situation. So it, it was a, a really good education. Uh, back then, I was able to sit and watch and assist a lot of great engineers and a lot of great producers. So I kind of picked and choosed what I saw from them and put that into my toolbox. So when it was my turn to sit in the big chair, uh, I had I had an idea of how I wanted to, things to go down. I saw that you also did lots of movie work as well, especially the Christopher Guest movies, some of my favorite. Was your approach any different there? Uh, that was uh, such a uh, 
interesting collaboration. Actually, I got that gig through my good friend, CJ Vanston. Mm, He's a producer, keyboard player, songwriter, extraordinaire. He came out of Chicago. Uh, He was like the jingle guy in Chicago in terms of keyboard. And he would do a lot of sessions for Dick Marks, Richard Marks's dad. Richard Marks's dad was kind of the jingle king at the time. He wrote all these great jingles. CJ did all these dates. After Richard and I collaborated on the first album, his dad said, oh, you got to try this keyboard kid. He's great. Richard said, Dan, I'm in LA. I can throw a rock and hit five great keyboard players. He goes, no, no, no. This guy's fast. He's funny. He gets great sounds. All right. So we flew him out to, to LA. And uh, I think right here waiting might have been the first thing we threw at him. Uh, and that, that track is like 90% CJ and then 10% uh, nylon guitar, Bruce Geich. Long story short, we told CJ it's time to move to LA. And he went on to work with Spinal Tap, uh, produced a couple of their projects. And he became Christopher Guest's music uh, producer for those various movies. So it was the same thing where in my phone book, I would call him as a keyboard player, but he would call me as an engineer to come in and help him out. And that's kind of how things work. So we had a lot of fun doing, uh, doing those movies. They're mainly improvised. There's about a 10-page script. That's about it. So all the dialogue and stuff is uh, just off the cuff. CJ's in uh, Waiting for Government, which I think is my favorite. He's in the pit band for the, uh, for the show. And I'm actually in uh, uh, Mighty Wind. I'm one of the roadies in a Mighty Wind. Ah, okay. It's my, it's my 15 frames of fame. <laughs> Very cool. So you're doing everything in the box now. Do you have a preference for plugins? Let me rephrase that. Are there favorites that you keep on coming back to? Yeah, I suppose. I pretty much grew up on Waves plugins. Uh, I got into the gold bundle right away and then made the upgrades. And now I have the all-you-can-eat-everything what bundle, whatever that is, the Mercury bundle. So I do a lot of, of, of uh, use a lot of their uh, things, but if there is such a thing as plug-in overload. And if you have too many choices, you can uh, spend all your time going down these blind alleys. Wherein, if you just pick pick one and make it sound good, you can make a great record with just all the stock stuff. Yeah. And uh, I know uh, there's a number of guys online who do these tutorials. You're probably one of them who uses a lot of the in the box. Digital design stuff. Just stock, yeah. Virtual instruments. I definitely am am a big fan of uh, Omnisphere, Mm -hmm. Stylus, and uh, Trilogy. Is that the base one? Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll pull those out whenever I need to to go down some some keyboard-oriented stuff. But uh, I do have a template of things that I use. It does save time. It does It does kind of lead you into making the same record each time if you're not careful. But I approach a mix differently. Uh, I, I kind of came from the school of build up the drums, add the bass, add the keys, add the guitars, throw the vocal on top. And if it doesn't work, pull it all down. Now throw up the vocal. Now put in the keyboards. Now put in the guitars. 
Now put in the bass. Now put in the drums. And if that doesn't work, pull it all down. Go do something else. Well, I agree with you. I always felt that getting the vocal in the mix as soon as possible, right after the rhythm section, and then building around that, then you always keep the vocal where you want it, where sometimes if you build the mix and put the vocal on top, there's no room left. But- yeah, there's a certain there's a certain discipline to, uh, it's kind of like making a cake. Your bowl is only this big, and if, you're, if the vocal's the last thing on there and it doesn't fit in the bowl, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What's the most fun thing for you? Oh, uh, I love mixing. I love cutting cutting tracks with a band. That's a lot of fun. I, I hear from artists that they really like working with me on vocals. I have a good empathy and, and workflow for doing vocals. But probably the most fun is, is mixing because you have all the elements there. It's not two in the morning where you're still trying to get the, the bridge from the singer or uh, you know listening to guitar overdubs at 110 dB or whatever. So having all that stuff in front of you and getting getting to uh, take a fresh look at it all. I like mixing for other people with, with their projects. And at first, first I kind of do a triage. Listen, what does this need? Okay, well, obviously the kick and the snare aren't quite lined up. I'm going to have to spend some time doing that. What else? Vocal tuning, yeah, they did some, but there are some notes that are going to bug me. Keyboards, typically keyboard players give you dozens and dozens of stereo tracks. Yeah. So you have to decide who's going on the left, who's going on the right, who's going up the middle, how are we going to make the most out of all these things? And then I'll start mixing after that. But I typically do the, the heavy lifting first, organizing the tracks, color coding things, making a lot of show hide markers of, Show me just the drums. Show me just the keyboards. Show me all the vocals so I can pop between different groups of things. What do you use on the mix bus? Do you always use the same plugins or does it matter? I try not to do anything on the stereo bus for the longest time, for the bulk of the mix. I'm trying to make things as a loud, apparent loudness on a track by track and as a group basis. So I will mix it all without anything on the stereo bus. I know a lot of guys put an SSL compressor or something on the stereo bus right away, set it up and then mix into it. I just never grew up with that workflow. So I try to make it as punchy and dynamic and loud without anything on the stereo bus. And then at the last minute, I'll go ahead and put in a couple of things and see, do I like it better? Do I like it worse? Typically, as if I'm mixing something as I, I'm producing it as we go, the artist is going to want to hear something record-like, something that's, that, that they can play in their car next to other CDs and other, other files that sound like records that have been mastered. So I will have to put something on the stereo bus to do the overall loudness thing. And I'll, I'll choose uh, Slate's got a real good one. He's got a, he's got a, a loudness box that uh, that does a pretty good job without ruining everything. But I I will go I'll bounce around between C4 and L2, um, one after the other, to try and uh, see if I like the sound of that. But again, that's like the last five percent. It's not it's not ninety five percent of my mix, ninety five percent of my sound. And regardless if I put something on the bus or not. 
I'll send a mastering engineer two versions. Here it is without anything on the stereo bus. Do your thing. Here it is with what me and the artist think sounds good. And if they can beat it, great. If not, or if they just add, you know, plus one at 15K or whatever it is they'll do, uh, then that's, that's, then we're done. Are you 100% in the box or do you go outside? I do. And only because of survival. I know a lot of guys like this, the hybrid setup uh, or have uh, their own cocktail of, you know, I take these buses out and they go into this board and they go here and they go there. But because of the artists I work with who like to jump from song to song and move quickly, uh, I found that if I can do it all in the box, it makes it the most convenient. I can pick up a hard drive, fly to Detroit, drop it into Bob Seger's system, and start mixing right away. When we're done, I take it with me. I've got everything I need. I can come back to my place and finish it off. So there's not a compatibility issue, and you can basically go anywhere with a hard drive and and uh, have your session. Are you still working with Bob? I am. We, uh, we started in 78. That was my first project with him. I uh, kind of grew up with Bob Seeger in that I started as an assistant engineer on a couple albums. Uh, then I would start engineering for him uh, on the Like a Rock record. They appreciated my input. They gave me a co-production credit, which was awesome. And I worked on almost all of his albums since then. I believe Don Was did an album with uh, Ed Cherney. And uh, Jimmy Iovine did a record with him with uh, Shelly Yakis. But I've done uh, the bulk of the rest of them. Speaking of Ed, I love Ed. We all love Ed. We miss Ed. He turned me on to a number of different microphones and techniques and stuff. When we were both working on Bob Seger, he'd be over at A&M, I'd be at Conway. And uh, so we kind of commiserated when uh, Bob was in a grumpy mood and (laughs) driving us both nuts. (laughs) <laughs> he, uh, he he got me through several of those sessions, but we miss Eddie. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Speaking of those kind of sessions, what's the worst one you ever had? And you don't have to name the client or anything. Just the worst. Oh worst my gosh, one. the worst session probably. Uh, well, there's a <laughs> there's a couple, <laughs> but uh, the artist was left to produce herself. Probably shouldn't have. She'd had some success, and the record label said, here, go produce yourself. We went in the studio in the afternoon, started around 4 o'clock, and we were supposed to be doing a, a guitar and a vocal. She was going to play guitar and sing this, this song. She kind of wandered around the studio and finally said, let's order food. Went, okay, now we're ordering food. So 7 o'clock, we're finally done eating. She goes, I'm, I'm thirsty. Let's, let's get some wine. Can they deliver wine here? Okay, so there now it's nine o'clock, <clears throat> and then that I said, "What about that guitar vocal we were going to do?" Yes, I'm not producing it. it. Was I was I was hired to engineer, actually subbing for somebody else. And she says, um, "Do you know anybody who plays upright bass?" Oh, well, yeah. How about tabla? Anybody who plays tabla? I said, uh, "Yeah, I know a couple guys. Call them up. I got an idea for a song." Okay, it's 10.30 on Sunday night. Sure, let me call, make a couple calls. So by midnight, everybody shows up. She uh, talks them through this idea of what she wants to do. And by 
she uh, she goes to the bathroom and never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. And I said, okay, guys, I guess uh, fill out your union forms and thanks for coming. And uh, yeah, so that 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 kind of stuff drives me nuts. Yeah, I uh, came up in a time when there were big budgets for records. Now the budgets are barely enough to 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 keep everybody employed. And so I always I'm a big fan of pre-production and knowing what you're going to do when you go in the studio. You can still allow time to be creative and and discover things in the studio, but just to to uh, waste everybody's time like that uh, drove me nuts. Last question, David. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Wow, that's a great question. I think I think the uh, best business advice I could give is be that go-to person. Be somebody who can provide solutions. Don't be part of the problem. Be trustworthy. Um, once you've earned somebody's trust in the studio, they'll be a repeat client for many years. I'm very fortunate when you look at my resume that I've done three, four, five albums with well, a bunch of these artists. And you look at other people's resumes and they did one record or they did one song. And I was like, wait a minute, that was a hit song. How come they never came back? Well, there's probably a story there, probably some ego, some, something that got in the way. So being a jack of all trades or, or being able to offer a lot of different services, I think is uh, very important, brings back repeat clients. I got a, a phone call from my mentor and very good friend, John Carter, who, who's better known as Carter. Mm-hmm. He was an A&R guy at the uh, Capitol. He called me up and he says, hey, do you want to make a record with Bernie Toppin? I go, what? You mean Elton John's lyricist? He goes, yeah. So I didn't know Bernie sang. He goes, yeah, he's, he's always stood on the side of the stage and wanted to be a performer. And he's put a band together with uh, some of the guys from Rod Stewart's band and the drummer from the Babies, and he wants to record it. I said, yeah, let's let's do it. Well, didn't have a studio. He lived up in Santa Inez, and he said, I'd like to record it here at my ranch. Well, great. Let's take over the exercise room, the racquetball court. I got a carpenter to build me a room for the drums to fit in. And uh, everybody sat in a circle and came in Monday, mor- Monday morning at 10 a.m., and it was songwriting time. They sat in a circle. Bernie pulled out a lyric, kind of talked through the idea of what it was. They'd come up with a melody and a rhythm, and by noon, 1 o'clock, we were cutting a basic track. After, after dinner, we uh, would start laying down guitar parts, extra instruments, and then after dinner, we'd be doing vocals and howling at the moon. So it, it reminded me of what the creative process process can be. And they looked to me to be not only the engineer and co-producer, but I was also their webmaster, created them a web page. I was shooting uh, candid stills of the whole process so that I'm, I'm figuring I'm the ultimate fan. I get to sit between the speakers as this comes together. And what could I share with people who would like to have the inside scoop of what's going on here? So I was the webmaster. I, I started a fan club for them, you know, T-shirts and all that stuff. So anything you can do that makes you valuable to the project, any any skill that you can bring to to four, and just be the go-to person that they trust, that they uh, that they uh, want to work with. 
in the future. You can find out more about David at themixguy.com. That's themixguy, all one word, themixguy.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.